0: Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another online edition of the OHC's regular work in progress talks, presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom and you can activate a live transcript uh, at the bottom of your screen. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. Before introducing today's speaker, I also wanted to share news of the next virtual lecture in the OHC's series on the theme of climate justice. Climate justice advocate and policy expert on building an equitable green economy, Vien Trong. We'll speak via Zoom on the topic of building an inclusive green economy for all on Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021 at 4 p.m. Pacific time. You can register for the lecture through the OHC's website, ohc.uoregon.edu. I'm now delighted to introduce our speaker for today, Gina Kim, Assistant Professor of Korean Literature and Culture in the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures. Professor Kim is an expert in modern Korean literature and cultural history, with particular interest in the historical, theoretical, and philosophical concept of the new, whether associated with material goods, social and technological revolutions, cultural and artistic movements, racial formations, or subjects of knowledge. She's the author of Urban Modernities in Colonial Korea and Taiwan, a comparative study of modernist literature and culture emerging in Seoul and Taipei during the Japanese colonial era, And she's the co-editor of the Journal of Korean Studies special issue on Intermedial Aesthetics, Korean Literature, Culture and Film, a collection of essays tracing how movements across media can open up new ways of engaging in transnational interdisciplinary work on Korea. A part of her current book project, Professor Kim's work in progress talk today is titled Amplifying Voices, Auditory Texts in Colonial Korea, 1910 to 1945. Welcome, Gina. It's great to have you with us. You're muted still.
1: Thank you very much, Paul, for that introduction. And I would like to begin by thanking the Oregon Humanity Center's Paul, as well as all the staff members for supporting my research uh, this past Last year, as well as uh, University of Oregon's VPRI Faculty faculty Fellowship, which has also supported uh, part of this project. I am going to share my screen. And is this all visible? Okay. My current project titled auditory text in colonial Korea 1910 to 1945 is a expansion or a extension uh, from my earlier studies on urban modernities in colonial Korea and Taiwan, which Paul had just introduced. In this book, earlier book, I had focused on modernist literature from the 1920s and 1930s, and in particular, focused on the visual aspects of urban culture. Thus, I was very interested in looking at modernist essays, fiction, and poetry that dealt with the representations of lived experiences uh, of the urban site and spaces. I wanted to, in my second project, shift the focus from The visual or the visuality of urban studies and urban culture to the sonic and thus this new project explores why and sound matters in opening up new perspectives in understanding modern Korean literature. um, Of the early 20th century, although sound and sound production have been essential components of literature and constructing knowledge of auditory cultures, the ability to record as to preserve and document and duplicate sound through mechanical reproduction was wholly new at the end of the 19th century with Edison's invention of the phonograph, uh, Emile Berliner's invention of the gramophone in 1888. These inventions allowed live performances to be recorded, played back to the mass audience at a later time and in different spaces, thereby reorganizing the way sound becomes mediated by materialities of technology. Shortly after their introduction in the West, the gramophone was also introduced in East Asia. As early as 1899, advertisement in Korean newspapers such as the Hwangsong Shimun or the Tongnip Shimun, which this slide shows, lure people to come and see this new talking machine. Likewise, in 1907, gramophone records were being sold in Korea and the first Korean music performance was recorded by Columbia Records that same year. These duplicated records, however, faced steep competition with the invention of the radio and its ability to stream sound synchronously over a wider geographical space when the first Korean radio station under the call sign of J-O-D-K opened in 1926. What's more, the move from silent films to talky films in 1936 further electrified uh, the mimetic experience of hearing the source of the human, uh, source of the sound connected to actual human images and objects, thus further complicating human senses and perception of sound. By tracing the history, culture, and technology of sound production, my study aims to work towards a new understanding of auditory histories and texts as they relate specifically to the form of modern Korean literary production and political subjectivities of colonized writers and readers and listeners living under Japanese colonial rule between 1910 and 1945. Uh, Which I would say was at once liberalizing and opening up new venues for cultural and artistic expressions, but also increasingly prohibitive in terms of what and how Koreans could express themselves due to various levels of repressive and ideological apparatus actively in operation. The debates around what constituted modern ways of writing and reading surged along with, the, with and against this media scape and colonial global context. Uh, the professional Korean writers and intellectuals of this time period could not easily escape from big debates on the role of literature in the making of modern Korean nation and culture. Though hopeful, the knowledge of the real limitations of expression in Korean language, both oral and written, and its existing forms and genres engulfed these writers. In particular, uh, the tension between writing modern literature with vernacular Korean alphabets and script, called Hangul, and the continued dominance of Kukhamun, which is mixed script, both Chinese characters and Korean, Um, mounted along with the imposition of Japanese colonial education policy in implanting the Japanese language as the national language while Korea was uh, under colonial rule for 35 years. Furthermore, the practice of oral literature and performances collided with efforts to not only preserve their traditional forms and content, but also to modernize them. Korean intellectuals undertook various processes of linguistics and uh, um, literary modernization in their attempts to standardize, formulate, and safeguard Korean language practices. Indeed, in the early 20th century, Korean language and literature underwent tri- um, transitional stages all the while being saddled with the colonizers language and other foreign languages that animated their linguistic habitus uh, at, multiple, at multiple registers. Yet, literary modernization in Korea is seldom discussed in terms of the sonic or sonic representations. The entrance of new sound media technologies such as the gramophone, film, radio, and the microphone, however, lay bare the important elements of speech, sound, and voice to the growing debate on modernity and modern literature. I argue that these technologies of sound production and conveyance allow Korean cultural producers and consumers to work to create a sonic imagination, quote unquote, uh, borrow from uh, Jonathan Stern's concept of sonic imagination of Korean language, literature and culture that underscore the vernacularization of Korean through uh, making audible textual materialities, which I am calling auditory text, as it was indicated in the book title. Um, The manuscript at the moment consists of Um, five chapters. Each chapter investigates an emergent genre that is specifically connected to sound production. So cinematic novels, radio dramas, radio novels, and the modern yadam, to consider the question of not only literature's oral and oral turn uh, during this time uh, when writing came to serve as a metonym for the modern, but also the ways in which the newly forged relationship between film, literature, radio, and microphone affected the practices of creating and consuming literature differently than simply writing and reading. Um, in fact, what I, was, what I hope to problematize in this book are the ways in which these emergent genres at once extend and challenge what has been the standard narrative of modern Korean literary history that often begins with Yi gwang sus 1917 novel Mujiang or The Heartless, as the first modern Korean fiction. Mujiang is credited as the first modern Korean fiction, not only for its themes of enlightenment, modernization, and construction of a new subjectivity, but also distinguished as modern, for the ways that the author brought the oral into written by writing in hunger, the vernacular script and introducing a vernacular style that evince, uh, quote, modern sentence structure and verbal affixes, unquote, which would depart from traditional narrative styles. Igles' modern novel also assured in another aspect of modern literature at the readerly level where ironic modern reading took a definite visual turn and became more of a silent and solitary activity. Innovative and important as Yi gwang Su's works are in considering the origins of modern Korean fiction, what kinds of transformations does modern Korean literature, especially narrative fiction, undergo a decade, a decade later when sound production, broadcast, and amplification through radio broadcasting is launched? is one of my big questions. The other questions are, how does one write for the listener? And how does one listen to literature? And how does one study sound when there is no sound to listen to? So my methodology um, has a dilemma of studying sound of early 20th century colonial Korea when there is an absence of a sound archive or the very limited number of materials available to actually listen uh, to them today. Uh, Ironically, despite having the technology that afforded sound recordings and amplification was pivotal in their creation. As Sadia Hartman's work on fugitive archives demonstrates the absence of an archive is in itself product and problem of colonialism and post-colonial societies that we study. In this way, the absence of recorded materials in relation to the archive of exi- existing written documents, which I study and which I take up in this, in this study, point to uh, an instance of colonial nationalist and elitist power at work. My premise is that literary texts are not only inscribed and read, but are also voiced for the readerly ear. I explore this central premise from within the field of Korean literary studies, which has taken in the recent years a sharp vision-centered turn, whereby sound has become an unduly neglected element of research and analysis. Even in the study of poetry, uh, in which um, image traditionally has been important, I have noticed an interesting shift towards um, image and vision, which has come to be linked with rationality science and truth, whereas sound and voice are seen as ephemeral, contingent, and insecure. However, as uh, the media historian Jonathan Stern succinctly puts it, sound is just as an enduring artifact of the messy and political human sphere, unquote, through which we can hear new uh, histories and stories. Therefore, to facilitate the dialogue of sonic across various literary and cultural media I take up the idea of a situated listening and situated listener who is presumed to share recall absorb retrieve and activate the knowledge of sound in order to understand a given text. Analytic attention will be paid to the trajectories and repertories of prominent vocal. Rhythmic and sonic configurations that are embedded and embodied in auditory text, uh, and which serve to forge connections between seemingly disconnected registers. I approach auditory text also through intermediality as a way to address the absence of sound, as well as a way to decolonize the study of modern Korean literature from the teleology of modern uh, Western modernity and modernism. Um, And this is something that I learned from my colleague, um, Glenn Wally, who said that uh, the history of literary production is inherently intermedial. After all, literature brings the oral and written together and writing highlights the diverse materials and surfaces onto which texts are inscribed. And the categorization of literary genres point to their multimodal ways. So in fact, in all three East Asian countries, uh, Northeast Asian countries, China, Japan, and Korea, one of the marks of modern literary production, especially the writing of fiction, was the effort to uh, unify speech and writing. That is unification of speech and writing. Uh, in Korean, it will be ilchi
2: mm-hmm.
1: movement to create new national literature. So in colonial Korea, the writing of modern fiction existed with older intermedial, especially vernacular texts such as Yadam, which I will be talking about in this chapter, uh, which has, can be loosely translated as historical anecdotes um, from the Joseon dynasty, from third, which is 1392 to 1910. I argued that these older, Vernacular genres were held in tenuous relationship to new technologies of literary production, where the archetypical uh, mode of performing narratives and interacting with the audience is configured by the constraints and possibilities opened up by sound technologies. Therefore, I find the idea of narrative across media or the concept of mediality and remediation very helpful. And uh, thus, intermediality does not simply describe a relationship between literary works and sound technologies, but I hope to show that it serves as an integral interventionist strategy that colonized subjects used to voice themselves and to hear voices that were otherwise silenced, uh, inaudible, or uh, unwritable. And by placing sound voice and listening and hearing back into textual analysis of newly emergent genres, I will hope to, uh, I hope to eliminate the relationship between technological innovation, everyday life, literary production and colonial hegemony. So what is Yadam? Yadam is a compound word consisting of the Chinese characters unofficial and talk, which can be translated into English, as I said, uh, as. Um, anecdotes, uh, miscellany, or even uh, historical romances and historical anecdotes. It's probably best described as a traditional popular literature derived from unofficial historical records opposed to the official court historical records. Although Yadam as an oral and written literary genre has longer origins and histories that goes back to the earlier part of Joseon dynasty, What interests me in this study is its uh, re-manifestation through new media, such as newspapers, magazines, and especially radio broadcasting. And in some, uh, to a certain degree, stage performances using the microphone uh, in the early 20th century. In particular, uh, this chapter demonstrates the relationship between Yadam as a prose narrative that has putative Oral origins and its remediation uh, through advent of the radio and specialty magazines, which actively facilitated the inventing or the reinventing of chosen history, which I characterized chosen wave, borrowing the name from the contemporary phenomena called Korea wave or Hailu, where the Korean language and past history has become more popular, visible, and audible. Uh, often combining entertainment with history to serve a pedagogical and global nationalist purpose. So similar to the contemporary historical television dramas or the uh, colonial period serialized historical novels, I argue that the modern Korean Yadang which rewrites and retells historical tales to be performed orally through radio broadcasting can be characterized as what Susan Stewart calls a distress genre, uh, where she argues that the folkloric forms such as fairy tales, ballads, fables, etc, were reproduced as an attempt to, quote, invent a domain of authenticity, unquote. I demonstrate how Xinjiang's modern Yadam closely engaged in the politics of inventing authenticity, along with amplifying the relationship between materialities of speech Sound and writing by making yadam an auditory text. So, who is Shin Jeong Shin Jung-won was born in 1889. Uh, although some scholars have said uh, has given a different date of 1902, but was taken to North Korea during the Korean War in 1950. As a result, his death, date of death is unknown. Uh, his given name is Shin Sang Woo. And this might be one of the reasons why uh, there is a confusion of his birth date or birth year. Uh, and Chongon is a pen name that uh, he began using when he started becoming more active in Yadam writing and performance in the 1930s. Shin, along with other leaders of the Yadam movement such as Kim Jin Gu, Bek Nam, and Kim Dong In, belonged to a, a group of intellectual elites who straddled the 19th and early 20th century. Despite Shin's participation in activities, he has not received as much attention from scholars either in pre-modern Korean literary studies uh, or oral literary studies or definitely not from modern Korean literary critics. And I have chosen to analyze Shin's Yadam not only because he has been understudied, but because his career in Yadam writing and performance began with the opening of the Korean language radio station in 1933. It was announced in 1931 that the opening of a second station and all Korean language station was in the plans. And in 1933, KB, KBC station number two began broadcasting in Korean with a more powerful transmitter and a new kind of radio, uh, radio set. Before For this, during the first six years of broadcasting, KBC practiced a dual language policy where roughly 40% of a single day's broadcast program was in Korean and 60% in Japanese. As one might surmise, this policy frustrated both Koreans and Japanese listeners whose programs were constantly being interrupted by programs in the other's language the establishment of the all Korean language station did promote the proliferation of radio sales and broadcast subscriptions throughout the 1930s. But more importantly, the station contributed to the development of Korean language radio programs. While broadcasting technology was being advanced and expanded, one of the most crucial aspects for the success of radio listening continued to be programming, that is the content of the daily radio programs. Although the colonial regime made concerted efforts to use radio technology and programming to cement its cultural hegemony, Korean listeners did not always uh, fall victim to the system of control or to the assimilationist policies or strategies. Rather, uh, it was the consumers who learned to use and indeed use the radio for their own pleasure and entertainment. This appears to be the case, especially after the establishment of the separate Korean language broadcast uh, station in 1933, during which up to 16 hours of radio broadcasting filled with news, education, and entertainment were carried per day. Yadam was given prime time slots in the programming. It aired twice a day around noon, um, and uh, also one more time in the evening between 8 to um, 8 to 8.30 and 9 to 9.30 usually for 20 to 30 minutes. Yadam broadcasting on radio went hand in hand uh, with publication of not just one but two uh, Yadam magazines or magazines devoted to Yadam in the 1930s. Yadam was, um, work on Yadam was edited and published by Yunbek Nam and Yadam was edited by Kim Dong in And it seems that Shin's close relationship to Yun Beknam also afforded uh, Shin to publish and contribute his original Yadam stories in both magazines, um, which were two of the most popular magazines of the 1930s in terms of print runs, uh, as well as sales. These three authors also published their own collection of Yadam stories during the 1930s, uh, my study of Shin's Yadam is based on my analysis of his um, Myung Chip, or collected works of Shin, Myung, uh, Shin Jong-un which was published in 1938. Since sound recordings of Shin's Yadam performances are not extant, I rely on his written work. The works were also previously published earlier in the magazines such as work on Yadam and Yadam. Uh, and Shin and his publisher, the Immunsa, likely chose the works that they thought were most representative of Shin's writing, as well as those that were probably well received by the audience listeners. Furthermore, my choice of uh, this particular collection is based on the speculation or my own speculating that the works contained in this volume Um, um, were likely radio broadcasts, if not uh, stage performances. Uh, Shin had developed an exceptional reputation for oral storytelling abilities, which was often reported in newspapers and magazines. Uh, And just to um, just speak a little bit about this Slide, this is a list of Shin, uh, Shin Jungwon's Yadam radio broadcast schedule that was published in the newspaper in the, uh, in, in the 1937. So as you can see, there's a, I'm sure this is not the entire the most extensive comprehensive list, but this does show that at least every month Shin was broadcasting his Yadam through the radio. So it seems that Shin had developed an uh, exceptional reputation for his oral storytelling. And uh, some of the newspapers and magazines also report on this quality. Uh, So for example, uh, 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 Yun-Sang advertising or uh, sponsoring his, um, Shin's uh, collection of Yadam had described Shin as, his character, words, and actions were able to touch the hearts of the listeners and were meaningful. Thus, when listening to his stories, one did not realize the passing of time, but only thought of how touching and meaningful the story was. Or uh, another uh, newspaper article reported that Xinjiang's Yadam is beyond comparison. Whenever Xinjiang broadcasts air everyone from children to the elderly pay attention and have fun listening to it. Uh, and then this uh, quote comes directly from um, this previous slide. Uh, this report in which he was uh, performing on stage. And it reads that the climatic point of his performance was such that listeners were wringing their hands in anticipation. So based on some of these uh, newspaper reports, you know sponsorships uh, show that Xinjiang uh, more than any other yadan performers, uh, were uh, had uh, superb storytelling abilities. It was also um, said that, uh, as I said earlier, that many. Listeners who were listening in on the radio broadcast programs would write to the radio station, and they would request uh, The radio programmers or producers to extend the program time whenever they saw in the newspaper that Shin jong will be performing and because of his popularity uh, the entrance fee to his Yadam performance commanded a higher price than any other performers. And this is also probably the case with the price of the uh, Yadam collection that he had published. Unlike Yunbaek Nam's or Kim Dong-in's publication, uh, this Shin Jung-won's publication was at least twice as much in the cost uh, of the book. Uh, Yun Nam was also considered to be a sensational performer um, who relayed uh, um, who was actually one responsible for bringing Shin into radio broadcasting and radio broadcasting of Yadam. And Yun Nam himself had said uh, in, a, in, a, in a newspaper interview that Xin Joan had the most superb and sonorous voice. So by placing sound, listening and hearing back into the textual analysis of the newly emerging genres, um, I hope to uh, demonstrate a, uh, technological innovation, everyday life and literary production and colonial hegemony. And I will look, now I'm going to turn specifically to Shin Jong-un's Modern Yadam. And this is um, the, um, copyright page of Shin Yadam Chip and the table of contents that is available in the front of the book. Modern Yadam, and this is the first page of, uh, the first page of the first story of uh, Shin's Yadam. So modern Yadam were, uh, that were written by Shin Jong-un during this, during the colonial period seems to be much like the recent Korean uh, popular historical TV dramas and films. And for those of you who know, for example, the television drama, Daejam금, Jewel in the Palace, uh, or, uh, which is about a chosen dynasty palace cook, or the film Gwanghae, uh, translated as masquerade, a film about a, um, one of the only two disposed kings in the Korean history, much of Shin's yadam uh, that he wrote and performed were not so different uh, from these, in that he took small portions of official histories, uh, such as from the Joseon Wangju Shilok, or the Annals of Joseon Dynasty, or the Tejo Shilok, the Record of the the Venerable Record of King Tejo, as well as unofficial history books such as uh, Tongak Chaki and earlier Yadam collections um, to weave together uh, a story using his imagination and his storytelling and writing skills to produce his Yadam. Um, And this certainly testifies to the tendency that uh, when we see the, um, the table content, we definitely see the tendency for Shin to engage with historical documents, as well as borrowing from or referring to uh, Yadam's uh, other Yadam stories from the, the past. What interests me in this volume is the way he uses Yadam as a form and mode for retelling and rewriting Chosen Dynasty history. The organization of this book or uh, this volume is especially telling in that he is engaged in this, in this project of rewriting the Joseon dynasty history. He begins with the founding of the Joseon dynasty by way of uh, telling a story about Yi who would become King Tejo, uh, from the, who reigned from 1392 to, to 1398. Um, and then this Yadam is followed by uh, the story of King Sejong who reigned from 1418 to 1415 and then sun from 1469 to 1494. So while the next set of stories are not based on biographies of kings, they are set in the time of successive Joseon dynasty monarchs and are about notable figures from the period such as Hojong, Jungjong, and Myeongjong. So he actually takes us through the history of Joseon dynasty from its founding all the way to uh, to, to the 17th century. And although one of the Yadam is set during the unified Shilla dynasty uh, during the reign of King Munmu, which was from 668 six, to 935, uh, it is a, a, story, a well-known story that is taken from the history of the three kingdoms. And thus uh, he brings again, uh, history back into, uh, in, in, into his uh, collection. In short, what I see Shin doing here in this volume is he is intentionally rewriting the history of Chose Dynasty through Yadam that combine both official and unofficial histories. Uh, and uh, the implication of this work might be quite obvious to those who know that he is writing during the Japanese colonial period, and especially throughout the 1930s when Japanese colonial government was increasingly moving toward assimilation policies with efforts to make Koreans into Japanese subjects by tightening control on education, uh, education curriculum, prohibition of Korean language studies and Korean history studies and Korean language usage. The many Japanese textbooks during this time that were published or being used in the schools uh, portrayed and depicted and represented Koreans as subservient derivative and backward Um, And at the same time, on the other hand, it also portrayed Koreans as filial, loyal, frugal, and having reverence for authority uh, and people who treasure traditional values. So in some ways, Shin in putting this volume, specifically this volume together, seems to be reclaiming Korean history and the glories of the past through his yadam that makes the listener and the reader Uh, It takes the listener and reader through early years of Joseon Dynasty, from its founding, especially through the golden years of King Sejong and Sunjong, the era uh, in which it's also often labeled as a renaissance, because this was a time period when Hangul, the Korean vernacular script, was invented. uh, And there was also promotion of science and technology, such as the invention of the rain gauge, and the writing uh, and the issuing of the complete code of law, the gyeongjag daejeon, the national law at this time. So in many ways, I think for the uh, colonized uh, intellectuals as well as ordinary people uh, like Shin and others, colonialism, colonialism was a space and time of both Uh, anxiety and uncertainty and as Janet Poole a literary historian has uh, written in her uh, argued in her book uh, living on the peninsula at this time uh, the the colonizers had a sense of disappearing futures uh, uh, and thus there was no uh, there was a struggle to imagine what what the present can transform Likewise, Shinye Park, a literary critic of history of pre-modern uh, Korean literature, who has recently published a book on ya- uh, 17th and 18th century Yadam, has written that Yadam is a um, site for constructing the 18th century, 17th and 18th century Yadam is a site for constructing new mode of vernacular belonging that not only charts the dynamic world of here and now but also paints contemporary society using written medium reflective of the very language use of here and now. So here, Shinne Park is describing and arguing that the Yadam written during the 17th and 18th century were very much about depicting the the everyday life of chosen dynasty and chosen people here and now. But unlike the modernist writers and uh, of the colonial period, unlike the Yadam writers Years of the 17th, 18th, and even the 19th centuries, Yadang writers of the colonial period reach for the past because the past seem safer and more familiar and perhaps more knowable thus reconstructing the then and there for the now. So that is uh, what I see with what is happening with this collection in particular. Now to, um, go into uh, to give some examples of what is happening within some of the individual Yadam texts. Um, While this collection, as I said, provided uh, historical education as well as entertainment, um, his text was specifically formed and constructed for the radio and I see this happening uh, at multiple levels, and one at um, one at one level, it's because of the con- consolidation of language uh, and the obsession almost with uh, the word uh, sound and voice, and especially the spoken and the sung words and the listening ear um, as central to I think. Xinjiang's Yadam, which I then argue uh, can be labeled as auditory text that was written for the broadcasting and performance. There are three um, elements that are prominently present present in Xin's text, and there are his consistent and repetitive usage of the actual word or sound that can be translated as sound, voice, or song, along with various references to sound that are heard and Made such as animal sound, weather sound, plant sound, object sounds, and voices such as cries, laughter, tone of voice, and so on. And then, interestingly, this text also consistently brings up the trope of dreams, where the dreamer is always hearing a sound or another voice who is giving oral instructions or prophecies. So here are some examples of in the first of just first four pages of the first story, I found uh, nine instances of the word Sori being used, and I wish I had a chance to be able to do some calculations or counting of not only the first story, but the entire collection, but from uh, just my reading what be, what came uh, very uh, noticeable was the, the usage of the word Sori. Um, not only was he obsessed with using the word story, but he used it uh, as a, um, not only in the first scene, but in subsequent scenes and other, uh, other texts, other stories in the collection as a way to uh, advance the story. And he does this through, uh, he, what he does is he advances the story through sound production and hearing it. Uh, and this is through hearing certain sounds uh, hearing being a, a, a character being called, uh, and also through a frequent usage of dialogue between characters, uh, as well as a monologue of the main character, whose, uh, whose thoughts are being vocalized. So this is the, this is my uh, very cursory and rough translation of the first Um, first page and first scene of the first story in this, in this collection, which actually addresses many of the things that I have just uh, talked about that is the usage, the consistent and repetitive usage of the word sori, uh, whether it's taksori, the sound of the rooster, to, for example, using sound as a way to advance the plot of the story. And then, of course, it begins with a dream that Li Shijung, our uh, our main character, has. And he, in his dream, he hears a um, he hears a, a mirror that is cracking, uh, ha, a mirror that has fallen and cracked. So um, I'm not going to read the um, the passage here. You can take a look um, and. Uh, what is again a very interesting then is that um that li shijun was in this passage so bothered in particular by especially the loud sound um, of the cracking of the mirror that he decides to consult a, a dream interpreter uh, who then interprets and explicates his dream. And uh, the dream interpreter then tells uh, Li Shijun that this is an auspicious dream. Uh, and he goes on to explain that the breaking, the sound of the breaking mirror is actually a sign that Li Shijun will accomplish his goals and dreams. And it serves as an announcement of Li Shijun's success being heard all over the earth. So the strategy and style are repeated throughout the volume. And more specifically, sound is used to mark time. It marks dreams. Um, And dreams are constructed as spaces where not only images appear, but clear sounds and voices enter to give specific directions uh, and as a sign for the dreamer to expect. And the human voice is always marked and throughout the volume, there are multiple ways uh, that the voice uh, of a speaker or the character is described. Uh, So, for example, in another story, uh, as well as in this story, as well as other uh, stories in the volume, there's uh, always a description of the speaker who has a uh, very Sonorous loud voice uh, compared to, for example, Another person who has a very sensitive and delicate and accented voice. Uh, And this is uh, very much apparent in the second story on uh, King Sejong uh, which in which there's a poor scholar who does not recognize and interacts with the king uh, just through the voice and the conversation that they have uh, in, the, in the dark evening, where he cannot see the image or the face of the king, but can only hear the voice of the king. So, um, these are some of the ways that uh, I think Shin jong repeats and strategizes in order to, um, in order to write Yadam. That is sensitive and attuned for radio broadcasting and for the audio medium uh, in which the listener will have a fuller sonic experience. Uh, Thus I conclude by just saying that the radio broadcast uh, allowed this older genre called Yadam to uh, be broadcast and brought to the fourth through multiple modalities and conveyance, uh, especially through the radio broadcast in solidifying and rewriting not only past histories, but also amplifying um, for the listener multiple registers of voices that can be heard. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Gina, for that fascinating talk. Uh, Really interesting. I would invite people now to share their questions in the chat, and I will ask them to uh, Gina. Um, I can uh, begin with um, a question that's come up for me. Um, you've pointed out, obviously, that w- there is a kind of um, latent nationalist agenda to, sh- to Shin's Yadam under uh, Japanese colonial rule, and I'm curious about um, the extent of regulation that the Japanese authorities exerted on these radio broadcasts and on the production of this kind of liter- literature. I mean, did they did they read it? Did they were they unthreatened by it? Um, it seems to me it could potentially Pose various sorts of um, challenges to uh, Japanese hegemony.
1: Yes, thank you very much for that question. And uh, um, what ha- I guess, in order to answer that question, I will go back a little further to 1927, when there was uh, a mo- the Yada movement was uh, initiated. And this Yadam movement was actually held on stage through touring of Yadam performers performing Yadam throughout the Korean Peninsula in big cities. And at that time, colonial uh, authorities actually cracked down on these Yadam stories as being perhaps nationalist or having two perhaps uh, subversive nationalist agendas. Uh, And of course, reviving and revitalizing Korean history. And thus the strategy that the yadam writers and performers actually took in order to avoid censorship that was taking place in these big stages where thousands of people gather uh, to, to listen to was to actually write it <laughs> and publish it in uh, these yadam magazines as well as through uh, radio broadcasts. And in part, I think it's because Yadam was by the 1930s considered to be part of a popular genre uh, that was less threatening uh, for the colonial authorities. But at the same time, because it has now become such a part of the popular genre as considered to be a part of the entertainment industry, it was also um, criticized by the intellectuals and uh, the progressive nationalists and the leftists who believed that uh, the Yadam performers and writers who are also caving into uh, uh, consumer culture and uh, colonial modernity.
0: So um, I've, I've gotten a message from uh, your colleague, Maram Epstein, who uh, would like to ask you a question or two uh, directly. So Maram, uh, feel free to show okay. yourself and to speak.
2: Um, thank you and great talk, Gina. So the, the first, the comment um, I was thinking about the overlay between these uh, historical anecdotes and stories of the strange, because they're all about dreams and weird things happening, people with horns. Um, and it recalled to me that in stories of the strange in Chinese, so in Zirguay, often the thing that pulls people into the world of the dream is a sound. Um, or a smell because sounds and smells are able to cross over boundaries in a way that visuality isn't so much. Um, So obviously in these texts, they're amplifying the use of sounds, um, but I don't think it's coming out of nowhere. So it's already built into that genre. Um, And the question I had had to do with uh, register and use of dialect when reading these things. And if we have any evidence of, so what register Because Korean has many different layers of formality and also use of regional dialect because as part of the nationalism in some ways, the closer you get to the folk, the more authentically nationalist it is. Um, and I'm wondering if you can say anything about that. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you, Mar, for those, uh, the wonderful comment and the question. Yes, I definitely agree that, that these colonial period Yadam were also drawing from not only Korean official histories and unofficial histories and uh, popular novels from the 17th to 18th century, but certainly from Chinese fiction, (laughs) Chinese pre modern fiction. Uh, So there is very interesting intertextuality that is taking place in these Yadam texts. But I guess the reason why I think it makes it different from the colonial, uh, the earlier period, uh, Yadam, uh, or popular fiction is this idea of, um, of trying to craft a national history (laughs) through these Yadam stories. And that is being done, as your question suggests, uh, through, for example, um, usage of the voice uh, and the marked voices in the text. Thus, for example, in the second text in particular, the second story in particular, uh, it's a story about this disenfranchised scholar from the southern part of the peninsula And he has been um, not recognized and he's not receiving the kind of honor that he deserves. So he decides that he will leave Seoul and return to his hometown. However, uh, it is at that time that he, of course, uh, serendipitously encounters King Sejong, who is considered to be this wise sage king who is very versed in, for example, the Book of Changes in particular. <laughs> uh, and thus he is. The, he, they have a conversation about the Book of Changes uh, in which actually this character um, speaks in the Yangnam dialect. And um, in his very Yangnam, the Southern dialect, but with a very sensitive voice. And thus in some ways, it brings together these two registers of the, the folk, uh, the, the speaking of the folk, even though he's a scholar, uh, but also the, uh, the language, the register of the language of the king, who at various points in the story actually comes down to speak in a very informal way that is very unlike a king's speech. So there is an interesting mixing. Uh, that is taking place in order to actually amplify these kinds of uh, of voices.
0: So Judy Kaye has uh, raised her hand. So um, Judy, go ahead. Why don't you unmute yourself and ask your question?
2: So I'm curious in terms of, you mentioned a couple of the contemporary um, dramas um, that one can see that supposedly portrays history and costuming all very lovely. And I'm wondering uh, how one can um, distinguish the great amount of fantasy uh, from reality. I mean, I think for myself, I have to read history along in order to understand what was really going on. But in terms of the sound, I'm wondering, are the actors um, interested or is, is there an interest in maintaining the dialogue as it was then? so that people of different classes are using the different level of formality in the speech? Mm. Or has that been altered to fit the
1: interests of the people who are flocking to watch these dramas? Yes, Uh, thank you very much for that question. Um, The modern, I guess the colonial period Yadam that I am studying are performed by one person, so the one Yadam performer is performing uh, on the radio uh, and on stage, unlike, for example, radio dramas, which have voice actors, number of voice actors who acted out. Uh, And in that way, it is also interesting how the one voice, the Yadam performer is giving voice to many characters within the story. Uh, And going back to Marm's question about different dialects and different voices, uh, what is also happening at the the textual level is, on the one hand, there is this kind of nationalist thrust to give the folk a voice uh, and also to maybe uh, flatten the the social status of um, the movement to flatten or to equalize social status during the colonial period. But also, I think these texts serve a pedagogical purposes, not only in terms of historical education, but language education. Thus, it is bringing in lots of references from, as I said, the Book of Changes, classical Chinese, but these, whenever classical Chinese is brought into the text, it's always annotated as if it's a primer for learning, learning these classical texts and classical Chinese. So there's on the one hand that taking place. Um, another question of course is of, uh, whether or not, whether it's contemporary Korean television dramas and films that have become very popular as well as what's the popularity of Yadam in the early 20th century is of course, the, the, what are the stakes at distorting history? <laughs> because these are imaginative retellings, right? They are not historical. Um, uh, historical records that have been kept by the royal historians. So there is that aspect I think that that is very very interesting and was hotly debated during the colonial period uh, and as well as in the contemporary moment. And in fact um, as I was revising this talk in South Korea most recently there was a, um, a celebrity or a who is he? he is a, um, I guess he's a, he's a um, history teacher. He's a history teacher who has become a celebrity because his uh, teaching of history uh, is done kind of, I think I would say in a Yadam way, in a very entertaining way, he uses lots of, uh, he studied theater as well. So he uses many, many theatrical <laughs> uh, elements to his history teaching and he has actually had several TV shows. Uh, however, he was also criticized for distorting history, right? And his interpretation of history for some listeners and viewers were completely uh, inaccurate and thus he was accused of distorting it. Uh, and then most recently he was um, it was found out that he plagiarized his master's thesis. So he's really gone. he's been, he's been, he's no longer present, but I think it, it really kind of speaks to the way uh, the stakes of his writing history and putting together history, especially in South Korea.
0: So we have got another question in the chat, and I would point, uh, I would invite anybody who has any other questions to um, let me know because we're uh, coming to the end of our time. But this question has to do with the the, um, methodological dilemma you mentioned that none of these uh, auditory performances are recorded, or none of the recordings are extant, and you've given us a very good sense of how um, of this of of Shin's uh, text as an, an auditory. Uh, text, uh, with all the mentions of sound, et cetera. Can you say a little bit more about other kinds of texts that you're defining as auditory texts and how they work?
1: Yes, thank you very much for that question. Um, Yes, the dilemma of not being able to hear the uh, the performances is, is is a... It's very much of a dilemma for me. However, there are some um there's one actually recording of Yumbeck Nam's Yadam that has been kept and preserved, and it's on a, um, on a, on gramophone, which has been has been recently digitized. So there is that one record which I I haven't had a chance to listen to because I couldn't go to Korea that summer, but <laughs> was I think can serve as a way to maybe extrapolate what kind of sound was available and what kind of sounds were being produced. Although I would say Yunbaek Nam and Xinjiang were com- very different performers from what I have heard or read in, in, the, te- in the newspapers and so on. Um, I think with um, other auditory, te- other chapters that I am calling auditory texts all have that the same dilemma Uh, of, for example, the cinematic novel, which were published in the the serialized novels in the newspapers, radio dramas, again, anything that was part of the radio has, there's no recording remaining, Uh, and then radio novels. So all what I'm actually doing is textual studies of sound (laughs) production and imagining sound uh, through the sonic imagination. Um, But what I think has helped me for example is to think about the technological aspect of radio and thus for example in the 1930s there was a uh, the production of the Neurodyne radio uh, which in fact was very important for getting rid of the technology that got rid of all the fuzzy sounds when you heard radio in the 19 in the earlier part in the 1920s so in that way I can kind of Again, as a researcher, imagine what the sound, how sound might have transformed. Um, Likewise, I also have examples of uh, Korean films from the 1930s and 1940s that actually uh, have sound in them uh, that's allowing me to maybe imagine voices. Although many times those voices of the actors were uh, recorded in post-production and in many cases, as well, they were not the voices of the actor themselves. (laughs) They were actually voices of these Yadam storytellers who had become very, very popular at that time. So in, although they are not, um, they're not equivalent, I've been drawing again from these different media uh, and mediums in order to try to make sense of sound.
0: So we're just about at the end of our time. The final question is one, um, have you, Considered or has anyone considered um, Making new recordings of uh, these yadam.
1: Yes, in fact, that's what I I've I've been working on a grant to actually um, Bring these yadam to life (laughs) Uh, and um, That requires I think one of course being able to have access to the original text And then, um, not only for being being able to make them available for the Korean ear and Korean listeners, but I'm also interested in translating them into English for my research purposes and uh, for uh, the English speaking audience here. that is in the works. And it's something that I am thinking of trying to do, but that also has many implications, right? How is there, to what extent can you actually uh, re-authenticate sound of the times and so on?
0: Well, Gina, um, good luck with that project as well as this project. Thank you so much for sharing your fascinating work in progress talk with us and telling us about your really exciting book project. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Thanks again for joining us for Professor Gina Kim's Work in Progress talk. Again, for more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu.